The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, well, I think that I'm probably like most people uh, when you kind of sit around and tell stories with people that you know and love, that we all have this ability, maybe it's just like the human superpower, uh, to be able to tell stories in a way where we edit out all of the parts of the story that we don't really want people to know. So I'm like that, I bet you're like that, that you're able to tell your story and kind of smooth off all of the rough edges to just give people the bits and pieces that you want them to know. So everything that you say when you're talking with people on some level is edited. And the reality of life is that most of the time when we're talking with people, like when you meet someone and you're visiting, you're never really talking to one another. We're really just talking to everyone's PR representative. Like, this is the part of me that I want you to know and I want you to see. And so that's just one of the ways that human beings, I think, uh, connect and talk and share. And, and so I'm going to share with you a little bit of my life story. And I know that I've shared parts of it before. Um, but every time that I share it, um, there are parts that I don't tell because those are the parts that I really don't want people to know. And I bet that if you're anything like me, there are parts of your life that you would just prefer that people not know. Um, one of the things that was supposed to be true about me from the time that I was little is that when it came to church stuff, like I grew up in the church um, from the time that I was little, like it would take a hurricane or a natural disaster to keep my family from being at any church gathering. That's just who we were. And from the time that I was very young, like I was supposed to be a rock star at church. Like, I don't know if you grew up going to church uh, where I grew up. We had this thing every summer called Vacation Bible School, VBS. And our little storefront church there in Gautier, Mississippi, every year at VBS, um, they would have this competition to see which of the kids could bring the most friends that week to VBS. And like the year that they first had that competition, I won that competition. <laughs> And they had this little trophy that I got at the end of the week. It was called the Fishers of Men Award. And my mother still has this trophy. <laughs> but that was just me. Like I was the kid who would go to Sunday school and I didn't know that Sunday school was different from regular school. So I actually like read and did the homework. And so they had to actually move me up in church. Like, when I was like in third grade, there's like, we need to put you in the fifth grade class because I was like, these other third graders are slackers. <laughs> but that was just me. And so by the time that I was in high school, um, when I was a junior or senior in high school, like I was the kid in our youth group in Atlanta who they just kind of let loose to teach all the other kids in the youth group. Like that was just who I was. And so when I graduated, high school, I came out to Texas uh, to major in Bible. And from the time that I was a student, 18 years old, like when it came to like church world, like I was supposed to be a rock star. I had 
professors who had basically evangelized whole African countries before they came to be professors, who would tap me on the shoulder and say like, you're, you're one of the spiritual giants on this campus. Like my friend and I, Jordan, had a Bible study that we led on Wednesday nights. And when you lead a Bible study in college um, at a Christian university, um, there is like part of you that wants to lead a Bible study and there's part of you that just wants to meet girls. <laughs> and so I don't know which came first, but we did both. Um, and I, <laughs> um, I don't know which came first, the Bible study or the girls, but it grew and grew and grew and we had it at Jordan's parents' house and it was full and this was just supposed to happen. And so I graduated and went to work for a church in South Texas. I was a youth pastor there and almost immediately when I landed on the ground, like that group began to grow. And so then we had an opportunity uh, to move to Houston. And some of you know, like for just about a decade, I worked for another congregation here in Houston as um, a youth worker there. And most of the time that we were there, that was a really good fit and things worked really well. But about five years into that time, our church went through something that basically every church eventually has to go through. And our senior pastor at the time decided that he wanted to move, go to Nashville where his parents were and his wife's parents. And every church just had, has to at some point deal with uh, their senior pastor leaving and figure out what's gonna be next in their life together. And that's where we were. And it was at this point where I was getting a little bit older. I was 28 at the time and had been doing this for a while. And somewhere in the back of my mind, always somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, at some point, someday out in the future, I'm not going to be a youth pastor forever. Like, I really think that, that I would like to do that, that I would like to preach and be a senior pastor someplace. And somewhere along the line, I'd also gotten the idea that I had some preaching gifts, that that was something that God would be able to use. And so this church where we were serving, um, while it had been in decline for about 10 years at that point, for a long time before that, that it had been one of the most well-known and progressive congregations in our denomination. And I thought this would be a really great opportunity um, just for me to get some reps in teaching and preaching. And so that was my idea, but it also was their idea. So one, one night I got a phone call from some of our church leaders and they said, well, we've been talking about what we're going to do during this interim period as we're looking for a, a new senior pastor. And what we would like to propose is what if you were to preach three out of every four weekends each month? And I thought that was great because this was the trajectory that my life was supposed to be on. Um, Rochelle and I had just um, built a house out in Katy. We were about to have our first daughter. And from the time that I was young, like this is what I always imagined it would be. This is the program that I thought that we were enacting. And so we started that and almost from the beginning, this church that was much older began to grow. And not just grow, like grow with people who were fresh out of college or starting their families, like really young people. 
And not only that, like some other things were starting to happen. Uh, like what I was doing was starting to be noticed by other people. So the phone started to ring and they were saying, hey, Sean, can you come do this? Can you come help us with this? And um, we'd like to hear you teach about this. And I thought, well, where have you been this whole time? Because this is supposed to be my life. Well, there are some people there in the church who were seeing all that too. And they thought, why in the world are we looking all over the world for our next senior pastor when Sean is right here and things seem to be going really well? And so they started to call and email and say, hey, do you think that you would be interested in doing this? Because we think you would be great. And I was just young enough to believe them. And so the church there didn't want to kind of corrupt the process that they had already been in. So I had to kind of throw my name in the ring and put out a resume and do all of that just like anybody else. And through a long process, we got to the end of, of it and there were just two candidates left. It was me and, and another guy. And so it was another strange evening when I got a phone call and it was a couple of church leaders and they said, um, well, we've, we've made a decision and we just wanted you to know before we told anyone else uh, that we've decided to go with the other guy. And all of that really did make sense to me on paper. Like he was much older, I was 28, he was 41. He had all of these degrees and all of these experiences. But for me, that was devastating. And for those of you uh, who speak Enneagram, I'm a three on the Enneagram and what feels like death to people like me is failure and embarrassment. And I had failed publicly. And this was the first time in my life that I had ever failed at anything. Like, like I can't remember too many times through sports, through competitions at school, anything that I had failed. And it had been public. And, and everyone in the world has an experience. Almost everyone in the world has the experience of not getting a job. That's almost universal. But literally every single person in my world knew that I had failed. And it's not an exaggeration to say that people that I both knew, people who were, I was close to, and people that I barely knew who were far away from me, like we're talking about it, and some were even joking about it. 
I remember one guy who's actually gone off and done some really good work, like joking to some friends, like, who does Sean Palmer think he is that he could get that job? I don't know if you've had an experience in your life where you have just felt small and never before did I feel so insignificant and weak. And I remember the days right after that, talking to my wife, and I'm not a crier, but I was weeping, and I remember saying, like, I hate this. And it's not just like losing a job, but kind of in the church world, like, if the church that you work for doesn't want to hire you, no one wants to hire you. And so our church leaders came and they sat around our kitchen table and they tried to explain to us that it really was that we think that you're too young and don't have enough um, education. So there's nothing we can do about your age, but we're gonna pay for you to go back to school. And so I was thinking, okay, here's my plan. Like, I'm gonna stay here at this church uh, until I'm done with school because they're paying for it and my mama didn't raise no fool and then we're out of here. <laughs> Those painful years. And like, add on to that. But like, I still work there. And I sort of face those people every day to hear in their words and see in their eyes every week. Like, you're not good enough. And there was a song um, that I used to listen to almost every night from a guy named Colin Hay, who used to be the lead singer for Men at Work. And this song was waiting for my real life to begin. And that's what it felt like. Because I was supposed to be a rock star. Like everything was supposed to be good. Everything that I touched was supposed to turn to gold. And now everyone that I knew, knew that it hadn't. And I guess kind of in the aftermath of all of that, um, that my heart just wasn't in it anymore. Because about four years later, um, that same group of church leaders called me again and said, do you think that a couple of us could meet with you tomorrow in your office? I said, sure. And so they came in and sat on this big white leather couch that was in my office at the time. And they said, Sean, you know, we've been thinking and it seems like to us that you have a different vision for where we ought to go and this other guy has a different vision over here and we can't do both. And we just had to decide whether it's going to be your church 
or his church. So you're fired. And that's what they said. They didn't use like the church words, like we're gonna go through a transition or we're, we're in a season of pruning. We feel like maybe God's leading you in a different direction. I didn't get any of that. I got, you're fired. And like all of that that happened just the four years before then, it was like amplified, compounded. You ever felt like, you ever felt like somewhere deep inside of you that like you're just fundamentally flawed? And if the people in the world who are supposed to be the best people were saying that you were fundamentally flawed? And so at the end of that meeting, trying to figure out what all this was and what I was going to do, um, I said, well, do you think that we can figure out a way to talk about this um, where my daughters don't have to hear that I have been fired? Because I just didn't think that I could take that. And so that's when we used all the church words, like going through a transition. But somewhere deep inside, like I had felt for a little bit of the time that the walls were kind of closing in. And so I remember being a boy and my dad saying like the, that success would be if you could start your career and walk, work all the way until you retire and always have a job. This thing is like always, always, always have a job. So during that time, and I knew I was getting close to the end of being in school, um, that I had started talking with a church in California um, outside of San Francisco. And, and so before um, my time was up, before even my severance was up uh, here in Houston, um, we decided that we would move out to Southern to Northern California to be a part of this church. They were looking for a new senior pastor and it was my opportunity. And I had been so embarrassed that I thought, I just need to get out of the state and away from everybody that I know. And so we headed out there and life went from bad to worse. And not, it, wasn't, it wasn't bad from day one. It was bad from before day one. Like we got out there and before we did a thing, like I could tell, this church does not like me. <laughs> and I do not like them. <laughs> and it was from the first moment, just a stream of criticism and battles they didn't like where we sent our kids to school. They said I used words that people didn't understand. Just one thing after another. And after three years of just banging my head against the wall, um, there was this really um, great group of people in Temple who was kind of relaunching this church and they thought that I might be a good fit for what they were trying to do. And Rochelle and I decided, you know what? We can go back to Texas. That's where all of our friends are. We'll be close to your mother. Um, that's probably what we should do. And so we loaded up and we came back to Texas and Rochelle and the girls got on a plane um, 
in San Francisco and flew to Colorado, spent some time with her best friend and their kids, and then they flew on back to Austin. I got to drive the U-Haul. <laughs> but I drove the U-Haul across the country um, with my spiritual director, which I don't advise you ever should do. <laughs> because that is three days of questions about your spiritual life that you have been trying to avoid. And as we were processing what the last several years had been, and he was driving, I remember sitting in the passenger seat. I said, you know, Don, the last seven years, um, I would be foolish if I didn't recognize that the common denominator of those last seven years has been me. And if this next thing doesn't work out, I'm just gonna go sell insurance. And so a lot's happened in the time since I made that drive across the country. And I think we've learned a lot and grown a lot as a family and as people. And when I talk about that story and people ask me about it and we get kind of in the details of it, when people ask me what those seven years were like, I always tell them the same thing. The worst years of my life the best thing that's ever happened to me. The worst years of my life and the best thing that's ever happened. And I'll tell you that to tell you this. This upcoming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which begins the season of Lent. And Lent... Um, is a celebration of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert doing battle with Satan right after Jesus' baptism. And for centuries, Christian people have decided that during those 40 days that they will join Jesus in the desert. And usually that looks like giving up something. Like people will talk about they're going to give up Facebook or give up, you know, eating certain foods for Lent to join Jesus in sacrifice. That's what Lent has meant for Christians through the years. We don't count the Sundays, but it's a time to join Jesus because Jesus goes into the desert, what some of your translations will say, the wilderness, for one reason, and that is to be prepared by God for what God is going to do for the rest of his life. That after Jesus' baptism, that his baptism isn't enough, his baptism is powerful and meaningful, but for, for Jesus to do the thing that God sent Jesus to do, that to do that in the way that honors God and that redeems and heals and saves us, that before Jesus does anything, he has to spend time in the desert. And the same is true for you. And the same is true for me. For you to become the woman, for you to become the man that God created you to be, you're gonna have to embrace your time in the desert. And if you're an American or you just kind of adopted American culture, 
Let me tell you the last thing that you want, the last thing that's instinctive, the last thing that you've been trained to do, and that's to spend time in the desert. Because what our culture trains us to do is to believe that life is on a trajectory of going from good to better to better to better to best, and that any setback, any slowdown, that that is somehow indicative of you've gotten on the wrong path, you've fallen apart in some way, that you are fundamentally broken. But what the testimony of Scripture is, is that for you to become whatever it is that God intended for you to become, you can't do it unless you go through the desert. And so what I want to do is invite you to embrace the desert because you will spend the rest of your life being the same person that you are now if you don't. And so I just want to share a few things about what the desert does for you. And it all begins here in Matthew 4 as Jesus heads out to the desert. Matthew says, the spirit then led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Here's what you need to know about entering the desert. Jesus doesn't go into the desert because he's done something wrong. Jesus doesn't go into the desert because that there was this one little narrow path for his life to be on and he somehow got off track. Jesus goes into the desert because God sends him into the desert. And what you need to know about the desert is the desert is where God sends you. And I want to be careful about this because it's not true in every case and it takes a lot of discernment and so you just can't paper over everything. But the place where you are now, that season, that period, that chapter of dryness and staleness and stillness that you think is so awful and it may in fact be, maybe God sent you there. And all you have to do is live long enough and you will experience a loss of a relationship, the loss of a marriage. You will experience difficulty with your children. Maybe some of you are fighting with an addiction or a disease. And it's not the case every time. But what if the place where you are now that you have learned to despise is exactly where God intends for you to be? Because here's what our temptation is, that when we are in the desert, when we are experiencing lack, our temptation is to believe that that is a sign of God's absence. When the truth is that that may be the sign of God's presence, that you may be right now in that season, right in the center of God's will for you. The desert for many of us is where God sends. The second thing that you need to understand about the desert is the desert forces you to pay attention. So one of the great truths of life is that what you focus on determines what you miss. So what you focus on determines what you miss. And for many of us, we have spent our entire lives focusing on our education, on our careers, on building wealth, 
on finding the right relationship. And once we're in a right relationship, keeping it a good relationship, then we're focused on kids and then we're focused on building uh, a life together. And then we're focused on retirement and we're focused on friendships and we're focused, focused, focused everywhere. And many of us spend our entire lives focused on everything else and we forget to focus on us. And what you've probably forgotten, if someone else has ever told you, is that you are, you are a soul. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. It's the other stuff that you have. You have a body and you have a brain and you have a house and a car, but you are a soul. And the great temptation of our lives is to focus all of our energy and all of our attention on all of the stuff that we have and not pay any attention to the thing that we are. And what Lent does is it stops us in our tracks to say, this is a time for me to focus. A friend of mine, uh, Suzanne, was telling me a couple of weeks ago about another friend of hers and a friend of her friends uh, spending some time recently in Japan. And the two friends are walking down this really noisy, busy street. And the second one says, do you hear the crickets? And she's like, this is a really busy street. Like, no one's hearing any crickets. No, stop. Listen. And suddenly she could hear the crickets. And her friend said, watch this. And she reaches into her purse and pulls out some coins and throws them on the concrete. And you know that sound that coins make when they hit the concrete and suddenly everybody turns around. And her friend says, you see that? We're listening for money. We're not listening for crickets. What you focus on determines what you miss. And I want to be clear about this because many of us got bad messages around this. You focusing on you is not selfish. You expecting me to focus on you is selfish. <laughs> because the best thing, the best thing that you can give your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your kids, your employees, whatever it is, the best thing that you can give the world is a whole you, is a healed you. And many of us live and breathe in the depths of brokenness and shame because we have focused on everything else. And in the desert, there's nothing else to focus on but you. Another thing that the desert does is the desert focuses, forces you to let go. So in the spiritual life, people talk a lot about change, and that's fine. Change is good, but change is usually about adding something to your life. You wanna take on a new habit. You wanna do things in a new way. Change is fine, 
But spiritual authenticity is about transformation. And transformation is never about adding things. Transformation is about letting go. Is what the spiritual writers would refer to as uh, allowing things to fall away. So here's what we tend to do. From the time that we are little and people tell us who and what we're going to be, we spend so much energy adding on and adding on and covering up and covering up and we cover up with personality, we cover up with successes, we cover up with education, we cover up with I'm this kind of person, I drive this kind of car, I live in this part of the city, this is I listen to these kind of people on the radio, we cover up, we cover up and cover up and then we wake up one day and we don't know who we are because life has given us, fed us so much distortion and distraction that we believe that all of the junk we've covered ourselves up with is actually us. And for you to become who God created you to be, to be prepared for God's next move in your life, means chipping away at all of the things that you've used to cover yourself up. Martin Laird talks about it this way, like sculpting. This is what he says. He says, according to ancient theory of art, the practice of sculpting has less to do with fashioning a figure of one's choosing than with being able to see in the stone the figure waiting to be liberated. The sculptor imposes nothing but only frees what is held captive in the stone. So this is what the spiritual life is designed to do, is to chip away all of the things that you have added on that you have called you to get down to your core, your essence, your inner beauty, your true self. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says that we are God's workmanship, that we are God's craft, that there is something that is you. And life has built all of this around it. And what walking with God does is chips away. What letting go does is chip away of all of the things that you've held on to that you only think are serving you. And we learn that we live in a culture that's told us that we were designed to be rock stars, but we love and serve a God who knows that we are rock. and wants us to move in ways that reveal our deep and inner beauty. And so letting go allows us to be free of all of the illusions of who we think we are, all of the silly ways that we have tried to be loved. Because we've all put on lots of illusions Henry Nouwen says it this way, he says, all of us, we, we deeply believe three lies. And those lies are that I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what others think of me. Well, here's the beauty of the desert. In the desert, you don't have anything. In the desert, 
there's nothing to do. And in the desert, there's no one there to think anything about you. And this is why, even against all of our inner protest, the person you want to be can only be revealed in the desert. And we will learn, like Moses, who spent 40 years tending sheep in the desert so he could spend 40 years tending people in the desert. We will learn as David lived in the desert and escaped to the desert. We will learn as Hosea woos Gomer back to him in the desert. And as the Israelites lived in the desert, that God's promise for us can only be experienced on the other side of the desert. And it's at that point when you have walked through the desert, what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. It's at that point where you can say, those were the worst years of my life. It's the best thing that's ever happened. Let me pray for you. God, would you give us eyes to see? To see who it is we really are and as we enter into this season of Lent, that you would give us courage to tackle those places in our lives and our soul that are corrosive, that are drawing us away from you, that keep us at a distance from your mercy. And God, some of us are in the midst of really difficult times already. And in this time, would you remind us of your greatest promise that you are with us? Lord, as we struggle with addictions and as we lose relationships that have meant the world to us, as we struggle to find our place in the world, wherever we are, God, that you are with us and that you are doing a beautiful and powerful work so that we can become all that you meant when you created us. That the promise that our parents held in their arms will be seen one day because we have spent time with you. And that you are bringing us, as the Apostle Paul says, from one glory to another. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.